for eternity. God will not have a special category of love for His Son that's different than His love for His people. By being placed in Christ, we are the same objects of love for the Father as the Son. And that's a stunning, stunning reality. of this, what did Peter gain? What did Peter, James, and John, what did they see? Four things that they saw. Four things that they saw. First of all, they saw submission. They saw the need for submission. So Peter says to, in his babbling words here, he says, why don't we make these three tents for Moses, Elijah, and for, for you, Jesus. We'll make these three tents. We'll make them kind of nice. You know, um, I saw some nice sticks laying over there by the trail. There's some palm branches. We can get some palm branches. We can make you a pretty nice little tent right here. We say that to that, Jesus. In other words, what Peter is trying to do, listen carefully, he's trying to establish Jesus. He's trying to say to Jesus, Jesus, here's what I can do. Here's what I will do. I will build you this tent. What do you think of that, Jesus? My resources, my time, my ingenuity, you know, I, I can build a pretty good tent. In other words, Peter is saying to Jesus, Jesus, why don't I take what I have and invest it into your kingdom? Here, let me establish you by this. And the father's rebuke to Peter is as if it's saying, listen, Peter, you don't establish Jesus. He establishes you. My son is not going around needing your tent. He's not going around needing your resources. You don't establish Him. He establishes you. And this is why I think that Moses and Elijah, part of the reason why they are there. Notice that they're there and then they're gone. Did you notice who didn't speak? Moses and Elijah didn't have a word to say to anybody but Jesus. They had nothing to say to Peter, James, or John. And so the point that I think the Father's making is, you don't establish my son. You submit to my son. You listen to him. That is the takeaway that Peter must grasp. He must grasp his own place. Because you see, what Peter is still trying to do, he's still trying to take Jesus and make him king by force. Do you remember that passage from back from the first miraculous feeding in John's gospel where we're told that they wanted to take Jesus and make him king by force? In other words, we'll put him king over us, but we're really the ones in charge. Isn't that Peter, what Peter is still trying to do? We'll make you these tents, Jesus, and you'll be nice and comfortable. And, and so we'll be in control. We'll be in charge. And what the father is saying is stop. Stop trying to plan his agenda. Stop trying to plan what he's going to do. Stop trying to make tents for him. Stop and submit to him. It reminds me of Psalm 46 and verse 10. Probably the most misunderstood passage in all the Old Testament. Psalm 46 and verse 10. We all know it. Be still and know that I'm God. We've all heard that. And how is it always presented? All the memes and refrigerator magnets always presented as be still and know that I'm God. In other words, meditate. Get out of your busyness. Just slow down. Quiet everything down in your life and know that I'm God. 
Is that biblical? Is that true? Absolutely, that's true. Absolutely, we need to separate ourselves from busyness and remind ourselves that he's God and meditate upon that. But that's not what that passage is about. Read the psalm. Read Psalm 46, and it is loud and clear what the context of the psalm is. Because the psalm is all about warring mankind against God. How man battles against God. Man will not submit to God. And so man takes up arms against God, and God says, put down your arms, put them down, be still, and know that I am God. This is what God is saying to Peter. Be still. Stop with all your tent-building suggestions. Be still and look to Him. Listen to Him. He's all you need. Submit to Him. Submission is the first thing that we see. Do you need to hear that this morning? Do you need to hear that all you must do is submit? God doesn't need your resources. He doesn't need your time. He doesn't need your money. He desires your submission and He invites your submission and He invites you to come along with Him in His mission plan. Secondly, He sees, first of all, submission. Secondly, He sees glory. He sees glory. This passage is nothing if it's not about the glory of Christ revealed to Peter and the others. John 17 and verse 24, here's the words of Jesus as He prays to the Father. Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, to see my glory. So the glory of Christ is revealed to Peter, James, and John in such a breathtakingly spectacular way. As we said before, no human has observed the glory of God in such a way unless it might be the Apostle Paul when he was stoned to death outside of Lystra. And in that, those, those moments, we don't know how long, but in that time in which Paul's life, his soul had left him, he was, as he says in 2 Corinthians 12, taken into uh, the eternal state, taken to heaven to see things which he was forbidden to talk about. Only that might compare to the glory that Peter and the others are shown here and seeing this glory of Christ. Listen, we read this passage earlier from Revelation 19. It's worth reading again. Listen to this description of the glory of the one who will return for his people. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. Does that remind you of John's prologue? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Do you see the glory of Christ in that picture? Do you see the absolute splendor of Christ in that picture? Compare that to the picture that we are often shown of this sissified Jesus, of this feminized Jesus that we see in paintings that go back into the medieval age but are still pervasive today. Paintings or descriptions of Jesus, depictions of Jesus in which He has an appearance that's much like Oh, I don't know, a European female 
with pale white skin and curly hair that's all shampooed, nice and smooth and slick, hands that never saw a day's work in their life, pale blue eyes. How does that compare to the Christ that we're shown here? Now, Christ, make no mistake, He is the embodiment of compassion and mercy. But He is also glorious and majestic and splendid. Also, think with me of the eternality of Jesus. Here's here's Christ standing here speaking with Moses and Elijah. So imagine, if you will, imagine Peter and James and John as they see Christ speaking with Moses and Elijah. If I could make a comparison... Most of y'all, I mean, y'all, you don't know me. You know what I'm about. You know who I am. You know I'm not a very, uh, I, don't, I don't think I try to put on airs or uh, anything of that nature. So you kind of know what you see is what you get. And so knowing me, imagine this. Imagine that you were to go to the, uh, maybe the food line down here in Jonesville. And you go into that food line and you walk back into the, the meat section. You go back there and you see, um, and here I'm so disconnected from the popular culture out Throw out a name of somebody that everybody would recognize if you saw him. I don't know. Tom Brady. So imagine, did that, did that work? Is that a name? Everybody sort of, okay. Didn't work? For, okay, well, in what, imagine someone that you just, just seeing that you would, you would say, I know who that person is. So you walk back to the back of food and you see that person, Tom Brady, seven-time Super Bowl champion. You see him and he's talking with somebody and the somebody he's talking to has got their back turned. And you say, that, that's Tom Brady. That's Tom Brady right there. So you walk over there and he's talking to somebody and you expect the person he's talking to maybe is standing there waiting for an autograph or something and you get close and you see it's me. And you say, he's talking to Pastor Jason. And you're like, wow, Pastor Jason must be getting an autograph. And you go up there and what you find is that's not the case at all. In fact, we're back there talking and we're not talking about his Super Bowl rings or we're not talking about his time with the Patriots or whatever. He's talking to me. And he's enthralled. Pastor Jason, I listened to that message from last week. That was awesome. By the way, listen to what Tom Brady said. But that, that was awesome. <laughs> or that one from the week before. That was incredible. Do you see something of the disparity? Something of the surprise? When you expect there to be this person and, well, this, this other person that we know sort of is a satellite revolving around them and you find it's the other way around. Now let's take that analogy, if we can, and I want to push it a little bit further. Let's say, for example, it wasn't 12 degrees outside. Let's say it was a nice 65 degree spring day. And let's say you were hiking on Stone Mountain Trail and you took this nice little hike up to the top of Stone Mountain Trail there and you get up to the top and you're looking out and you're enjoying the vista and everything and look over there and you see a couple people over there by the edge and you sort of look and you see me. Only it's not me like you see now. I'm glowing. I'm radiantly glowing. And then you get a little closer and you say, he's talking to two people. Look who he's talking to. Is that Winston Churchill? And is the other one Abraham Lincoln? Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill are talking to Pastor Jason? 
And you come a little bit closer and you say, well, surely I'm going to hear Winston Churchill saying to Abraham Lincoln, you know, Mr. Lincoln, the way that you saved the Union back in the 19th century, that was, an, that was a really incredible thing that you did. It was very difficult, but I can really appreciate what you did. You kept the Union together, the greatest nation in the world. You kept them together. And Mr. Lincoln replies, well, Mr. Churchill, thank you for saying that. But you know what? What you did in World War II, that, that, you saved the free world in World War II. You alone, no other person is as responsible for saving the free world as you in World War II. And that's what you would expect. And then there's me listening. Wow. But you get closer and that's not what's taking place at all. Instead, you get closer and you find both of them, they could care less about each other. They only care about you. Tell us, Pastor Jason, tell us this, tell us that. As you behold that, suddenly in your spirit, you you realize I have completely misunderstood who he is. How does Winston Churchill know him? Winston Churchill died 50 years ago or 40 years ago. How does he know him? Abraham Lincoln, how does he know Pastor Jason? And why are they so interested in him? I've completely misunderstood. In a sense, this is validating Jesus' words in John's Gospel. Remember in John's Gospel where Jesus says, tell me this, in the bush passage, why does God say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Not, I was the God. And Jesus' point is, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still live. And and so they're not deceased and gone. They still exist, and God is still their God. And he goes on to say, and God is the God of the living, not the dead. So he's validating his point here. Here are Moses and Elijah, and they know him. The eternality of Christ. The fact that people who lived centuries ago know him and are interested in only talking about Him, the glory that they saw was like nothing else. But now quickly, let's move on to number three, the suffering. Because this passage, if anything, what this passage invites us to do is to meld together in our thinking the glory of Christ and the suffering of Christ. Because those two things are right here together. I know this passage seems to be all about His glory, but it is equally about His coming suffering. Look with me in your notes just real quickly. We could spend lots of time talking about this, but I just want to just observe all of the parallels, all of the connections between the transfiguration and the cross. Look with me. The transfiguration. For example, the transfiguration, this was a private epiphany, but there is coming another mountain, the mountain of Golgotha, in which it's a, not a private epiphany, but it's a public spectacle. This mountain, Jesus is accompanied by two prophets. On the next mountain, he'll be accompanied by two thieves. On this mountain, this is a demonstration of his glory. The next mountain will be a demonstration of his humility. On this mountain, Jesus goes up the mountain to pray. On that mountain, he goes up the mountain carrying his cross to die. In this mountain, Jesus engages in a a conversation with His disciples about His exodus. On that one, 
His exodus is what he achieves, the salvation that results from his exodus. The disciples here are told to wait at the foot of the mountain. There the disciples have ran and hidden in fear. This event is preceded by Jesus' rebuke of Satan. The next mountain is preceded by Satan's indwelling of Judas. On this mountain, Jesus' clothes are supernaturally made radiant. On that mountain, His clothes are, are gambled over and sorted out and divided among them as a demonstration of His humility. On this mountain, three male disciples view His glory up close. On that mountain, three female disciples will view His shame from afar. On this mountain, a cloud of glory envelops Jesus and the disciples. On that mountain, darkness will cover all the land in God's judgment. On this mountain, the disciples see and hear men who have died. On that mountain, Jesus himself will die. And after that, many of those who have died will come out of the graves and talk to people. On this mountain, the identity of Jesus is declared by the Father from heaven. On that mountain, his identity is declared by his executioner. On this mountain, the Father of affirms his love for his son. On that mountain, the son cries out, why have you forsaken me? On this mountain, the question of Elijah is raised. What is this thing about Elijah coming first? On that mountain, the question of Elijah is raised again. Don't do anything. Let's see if Elijah comes and rescues him. On this mountain, the disciples are commanded to silence. On that one, they're commanded to take this news to all the world. And then finally, on this mountain, this followed by a conversation among the disciples trying to understand what they saw. On that mountain, it's followed by a conversation on, between the disciples on the road to Emmaus trying to comprehend what they saw. You see the connections between the Transfiguration Mountain and the Mountain of the Cross are too many and too close to ignore. Clearly, God wants us to see the cross looming strong and large over the mountain of transfiguration. So this is all about his suffering. So in the same way that his glory is far more glorious than anyone recognized, so also his coming suffering is far worse than anyone recognizes. Now, lastly, quickly, we'll move on to the last thing. This is about submission. This is about his glory. This is also about his suffering. But lastly, this is about love. The voice from heaven declares, this is my son, my beloved son. Reminds us of Genesis 22, Isaac, is being carried up the mountain. Abraham is taking his son up the mountain. God says, take your son, the one whom you love, take him up there and sacrifice him. So that reminds us of this instance. This We're reminded of God's love for his son. He says, this is my son, my beloved son. Now that word beloved is a word that's easy to pass over. It's easy to just sort of see that word and keep going and just think of it as some sort of word we see in scripture all the time or some sort of title, like putting Mr. before somebody's name. But instead... Pause for just a minute and recognize what that word is saying. Beloved, this is the loved one. This is the object of my love. I am declaring that this, my son, he is the object of my love. One of the things that John brings out over and over in his gospel is the love of the father for the son and the love of the son for the father. The father's love for the son is the most profound love that the universe has ever known. The Father's love for the Son is sinless, it is perfect, it is infinite, it is never beginning, and it is never ending. The Father's love for the Son is a love that transcends all description. So the Father says, this is my beloved Son, the one who is the object of my love. Then he says, we read in the text, that this cloud overshadowed them. So here's the last thing to see. 
as this cloud overshadows them and the voice declares, this is my beloved son. We don't understand the father declaring his love for the son as if to say, that's him. So stay away. Y'all listen to him. Do what he says. Quit giving him a hard time. Fall in line. That's not what the father's saying. The father is not declaring his love for the son in such a way as to exclude the disciples from that love, to say, you know, no, no, stay away from him. Don't bother him. Kind of like the, uh, the husband who has what I would say is a healthy biblical love for the wife. And he says, this is my beloved wife. I don't want other men looking at her. I don't want other men lusting for my wife. That's not what the father's saying here. Instead, what the father is saying This is my beloved son in whom my love for him also invites you to enter in. So here's where we return to the overshadowing. When God overshadows Mary, that is an impregnating overshadowing. And what it does is it takes Mary and brings her into this unique relationship in which she is the mother of God. The same thing we see in the tabernacle, the same thing we see in the temple. In other words, when the the cloud overshadows them and God declares, this is my son, my beloved one, what he's saying is this love that we have is the love that you are invited into. One of the most profound truths of Scripture is that we are told that the Father's love for the Son is the same love He has for His people. Look with me in John chapters 15. Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, so I love you. John 17, I in them and them in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Brothers and sisters, this is, I think, the most... If there's a more staggering truth in Scripture, I don't know what it is. And the staggering, the, the staggering truth is this. For eternity, God will not have a special category of love for His Son that's different than His love for His people. By being placed in Christ... We are the same objects of love for the Father as the Son. And that's a stunning, stunning reality. And so as the cloud overshadows them and the voice speaks, it's not saying, here is a wonderful eternal love that I have for my my Son. Now stand back and behold it. Stand back and just be taken taken, um, by surprise at the depth, at the profound depth of love that I have for my son. That's not what God is saying. God's saying, this is my beloved son. And by being his followers, by being his called out people, you too are called into the same relationship of love that I have for my son. That's the most profound truth I think that the passage points out. The indescribable love is the same love secured for us by the son and into which we are invited by the spirit. 